Thanks, Jim. Good morning. Wow, you guys filled up this place this morning. I appreciate that. Do I sound loud and authoritative right now? I kind of like that. If I'm going to preach some fire and brimstone, I better do it now, huh? Yeah. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Uh, towards the end of my message today, we will partake in communion. So just so you have a heads up about that, uh, we do have a table here with uh, that's got the little wafer, the bread in it, and the, the cup. So since we've been doing things a little bit differently since uh, the pandemic situation, so be sure and grab that before the end of the message uh, today if you want to participate with us. Uh, you're going to want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I think we'll be spending a little bit of time here, uh, definitely this week and possibly... Uh, next week. I might as well say definitely because uh, there's a lot of content here. And, and uh, so turn there while I turn there. And we're going to pray and then we're going to dive into the Word. God, we uh, come before you this morning humbly. Lord, we bring our lives before you. Lord, we bring our hearts and minds before you. And God, we submit to you right now. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd fill this room. Lord, that you'd be stirring in each one of our hearts. Lord, that as we read your word and we draw out of your character and your nature who you are, Lord, that that would be life-giving fresh breath for us. Lord, that we could breathe deeply of the truth, Lord, and that we would be uh, just transformed, Lord, by the power of your word and the power of your truth. So, Father, I just invite you now to use me and work in our hearts and minds today as we explore your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to start talking about uh, probably the most famous of sermons in the Bible that we're aware of called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, there's a part we call the Beatitudes. And uh, I kind of thought it must should have meant like be attitudes like have a good attitude with two t's in it and i discovered very quickly that is not correct actually the beatitude is a word that that um has been applied to this it's not something we see in the scripture but it's something that we have come to apply to these passages of scripture and i think you know when we're wrestling with life's issues and going through different circumstances and going through tests and trials and our, uh, even like the circumstances that we're in right now where we're uh, experiencing a lot of challenge, all of these things are testing us. They're testing our priorities. They're testing our faith. They're testing uh, whether or not we really believe in the Word of God and whether or not we believe the things Jesus taught us are actually true and actually things that we should be living according to. And we want to look at the life of Jesus because he is our greatest example. He came here to show us what humanity should look like. And then he teaches us all these things about the condition of our heart and who we should be, and not just on the outside, but on the inside. Jesus is very concerned with the inner nature, inner being of who we are, that our hearts are transformed that we are made brand new when we invite him into our lives, that there's a transformation that comes to our souls. And so when we look at passages of Scripture like this, we want to draw out of them, God, how are you trying to transform me? How are you trying to lead me? A friend of mine this week mentioned to me in talking, you know, they said, isn't it interesting how 
when you preach a message, people take the information and they connect it to their own biases and use it for justification for things. And like, yeah, it is a challenge when we hear the word of God, when we're being, when we're, we're teaching and we're preaching and we're exploring and studying the word, the primary thing we should be doing with that word is making it a part of our lives, not prioritizing it for someone else's life. It's a mirror that we look into. We see a reflection of ourselves in it. This is about you transforming, not necessarily the person next to you. Although it is, that's not your priority. God is working with them. He's leading them. We can encourage them at times. But we often hear the truths of Scripture, and then we point our finger and go, yeah, so-and-so needs to be more joyful, or so-and-so needs to hear this word. But I'm always, and I'm guilty of that as well. And I think whenever we're studying the scripture, we have to stop and go, God, what are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to transform in my life? How are you trying to shape my character? Rather than what I need to do to take this to go help someone else fix themselves. I think it's really important, especially uh, right now, and it's just... uh, accusations are heavy. They're flying all over the place. There's criticisms. There's meanness, mean-spiritedness, even amongst Christians. And our priorities are being tested. And we have to ask ourselves questions about our own character, our own nature, our own thinking, our own words, our own beliefs. Do they line up with the Scripture? Because if they do not, they are secondary. They are secondary. We have to be able to look at ourselves and go and and examine ourselves and and say, does my uh, belief system, does my communication, does the way I'm treating people, does the way I relate to people line up with what the scripture teaches? Because if it does not, it is not priority in life. God gave us this word as authoritative, not not, authoritative. a secondary source of information. It's one of the things about the dangers of rationalism and enlightenment and lots of good things came with those movements, but in a lot of ways it hamstrings us as well because suddenly I become God. I become the one who decides. If it doesn't make sense to me, then it must not be right. And so the word comes secondary to those things. And so we need to be sure that we're prioritizing the Word of God and looking at what Jesus taught us and taking it seriously. What was he after? He was was after the heart. He He wasn't trying to institute a faith that was mere appearances or mere function or mere structure. He wanted to institute something that really transformed the hearts and minds of people. And when we absorb his word, his character, we read about him, we learn about him, it should begin to transform something in our hearts. And this is a time, as important as ever, that while our priorities are being tested, that we are looking to the word of God as our source. Everything else then derives from there. So Jesus, the context of this situation is he is just getting into ministry, and he has huge amounts of people following him because he's been healing people. This is amazing. All these diseases and sicknesses are being cured, and so people are starting to come to him to hear what he has to say, and we begin in Matthew chapter 5 
with verse 1, the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I think it's important for us also to realize of these, these things that Jesus is about to say. He's speaking it to the people that are following him. He's telling his disciples. Those are investing in that relationship with him. He's not necessarily preaching all this to the world at large. And it'll make more sense as I go why I, why I clarify that. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It can be, it's not language we would use much in our context. Uh, Probably one of the better ways to look at it is this idea of being humble. Poor in spirit, we would say, actually I'm going to use an example of a horse for another one of these, but if you had a horse that's kind of wild and ornery and doesn't want you to climb on it and ride it, we would say it's very spirited, right? It's, it's full of something of itself. It's boisterous and loud and ornery and independent and it's just full of err. If I could say it that way. If I had to write a dictionary, I'd be in real big trouble. It's just err. You're very spirited. But Jesus is challenging us with something about being poor in spirit. In other words, being humble. Being that, that whole spirited idea is a haughty thing. It's an arrogant thing. It's a self-willed kind of concept. And Jesus is coming to us saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are really humble internally, who aren't self-willing themselves into enforcing themselves on everyone around them. I don't know, that doesn't really make sense. But you probably understand what I mean. To be humble. Those people who in their hearts are truly humble, they will inherit the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, uh, we often imagine the life after this. Some, you'll get a cloud somewhere that you'll ride on and look down on the earth, right? But really, that isn't what the scripture teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talked, doesn't come about by your careful observation. It isn't here or there. It's within you. It's, it's, a kingdom is a place where a king has jurisdiction. And when you've given your life over to Christ, the kingdom of God comes and lives in you. You become a part of that kingdom. And yes, There is a hereafter that we participate in, but the kingdom of God is now. When Jesus started his ministry, he was going around preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. What does it mean to repent? Turn and go the other way. Prepare yourself. Adjust. Adjust because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus was ushering in this kingdom through the sacrifice of himself. You and I can participate in his authority. We can become his loyal subjects. By participating in the sacrifice of Christ, accepting him, believing in what he has done for us. But we can't really believe that we need a sacrifice or we need a savior. We can't accept his lordship in our lives when we ourselves are on the throne. I'm the one who decides. I'm God. 
When I can't humble myself, when I can't be poor in spirit, God can't take control. He's not really my Lord if I'm still making myself Lord and submitting myself to his ways and his teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody's getting into the kingdom of heaven until they've humbled themselves and accepted that sacrifice. When they put their faith that someone had to make a way for them. They couldn't do it themselves. You and I can't do it ourselves. We need the blood of Jesus to take our place that we might participate in his ways. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, opposite of poor spirit. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. I was visiting with another friend this week. I was talking about circumstances. It's almost impossible to avoid. It's just been such a crazy time. And the word pride came up. And when we're threatened and we feel oppressed and we feel like maybe we'll be jeopardized or compromised, it's natural for us to become self-defensive, to protect ourselves to kind of lash out and become guarded because we don't want to get hurt or we don't want things to change or we don't like what's going on. And that's natural for us to do that. But we have to be very, very careful that we're adopting the nature of Christ, not the nature of the world or sinful nature or a Babylonian concept for the way we respond to what's going on in the world. Jesus didn't. Neither should we. We don't want to be so full of pride and haughty and have this like uh, kind of chargy attitude full of arrogance in order to accomplish what we want to accomplish. We are called to be those that are poor in spirit, who have humbled themselves, even to the point that we've actually died to ourselves. Self died. We let go of the old self. We've adopted this new that Christ puts on us. We're not called to be proud. We're not called to be haughty. We're not called to be arrogant. We don't want to divide the spoil with the proud. We want to look at the scripture and look at our Savior and look at his nature and his character and his teachings and invest those things, insert them into our lives and let them transform us. Although it goes so against our human nature. But our human nature is corrupt. It's a sinful nature. It's a broken nature. And when we go back to those primitive concepts, those elemental spirits of the world, in order to operate, we're setting ourselves up for failure. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 11.2. There's a wisdom that comes with approaching things with humility, a humbleness, as opposed to a pride and an arrogance. We don't even know what tomorrow holds. (laughs) When we recognize that God is on the throne, that he's sovereign and powerful, that he's working in his church, the people, he's testing. He is testing the church. He's testing the people. He's boiling out the dross. He's separating wheat and chaff. It's harsh. It's difficult. Our hearts are tested to the max. And if our perspectives and behaviors and attitudes don't line up with Scripture, 
They are to be amputated from our character and our nature. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I, the reason I talked about this being for Jesus' disciples and, is I don't think that just because we mourn automatically means we're going to be blessed. Jesus is getting at something about the heart here, something about our nature. So what does that mean? Blessed are those that mourn. This is a challenging one, but I think we can understand what it means. Jesus was a man who mourned. And what did he mourn? What did he grieve? Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. This is prophecy about Christ. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. We sometimes feel like something must be wrong with us if we're feeling this grief or this sorrow over the broken condition of the people and the world around us, a true compassion that grieves for the lost, that grieves for the brokenness of what God has created and the brokenness in people's lives. That's what Jesus did. He was grieved when he looked at the brokenness of humanity. Luke chapter 13 verse 34 does demonstrate one of these moments when we recognize that Jesus was grieving over the people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing I mean, there's a huge warning in this scripture as well. He has a compassion and a grieving over his people that he loves, and he wants to gather them together. You, you see this tenderness in him, like a hen gathering chicks under her wings. Like, oh, man. But you were not willing. And I go, God, help me have that kind of compassion and that mourning, that looking at the brokenness around me and recognizing and grieving for it. And that grief, crying out to God. This is what we do when someone passes away. We mourn. Why do we mourn? Because it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Because it's not right. Death wasn't part of the original plan. It wasn't what we were created for. And yet it's a, a broken part of what we suffer with. And when it happens, we grieve. We mourn the loss. We express that heartache over something. And of course, we can liken that to our situation in modern times too. We just, people need Jesus. They need hope. They don't have it. There's so much brokenness. The world is as, just as broken as it ever was. And there's just as much terrible things going on in the world as there ever was. No matter what advancements mankind has made, it's just atrocious. And so when we look, we have to ask ourselves, is there something in me that recognizes the brokenness and has compassion and grieves that brokenness? I think sometimes when we read through these beatitudes, we sometimes think like, well, so-and-so's the poor in spirit one, and so-and-so's the mourning one, and so-and-so is the meek one, and on and on and on. But I don't think that's the right way to look at this. These are all... Issues of our own character, our own heart, our own nature. We're called to all of them, every one of them. 
not to pick one and decide this is the route I'm choosing. It's not like personality or gifting. This is about the character of Christ that's working in all of us, all of who he is working in all of who we are and bringing that transformational power to us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is not a word we like in our modern context. That doesn't mean that the word used here is wrong or inaccurate translation or anything like that. But it's often misunderstood to just simply mean weak. Meek means weak. And oftentimes in our modern language, we do use it in that way. But the translation in the Bible, the way it's, what it's communicating here is more than that. It's very interesting. We could spend a lot of time probably unpacking this. But the word meek in the Bible, uh, particularly when it's translated, even the, even the Septuagint, when it was, the Hebrew was translated to Greek of the Old Testament, and then also when the New Testament was written in Greek, the word they chose to use here for meek would have been a word that the Greeks used when it came to horses. Now, we would call it broke. We break a horse. When a horse has that haughty spirit, it hasn't been humbled yet. It's going to buck you off. It's not going to obey. And the Greeks would use a word, they'd say it would be like this. We're going to meek the horse, or that horse has been meeked. Okay, but that's in the Greek. It's been broken. It's been brought into submissive control. And so when we, we start talking about the meek, sometimes people would, would use the, the phrasing um, power under control. Meekness is power under control. And I think we have to be careful when we apply that to ourselves because it, it often sometimes can feel like, mm, I've got it going on and you're lucky I'm restraining myself because I'm so meek. Oh, that's not. That doesn't really capture the heart of it. The heart of it is the heart of it is that you actually have been brought under the control of God. You've submitted yourself completely. You've been broken. You've become gentle. That word gets translated gentle often. You could you could even say, "Blessed are the gentle," or those that have been made gentle. This is the character of our Savior. Now, I'm going to pause, and I'm going to look in this like a mirror. And I'm going to go, blessed are the meek. Am I meek? God, have I been fully submitted to you? God, have you gentled me? (laughs) Have you made me low and broke like a horse that you could lead me in whatever direction? I received a prophetic word one time when I was a young man. Someone was praying for me. They said, you're like one that's been halter broke, but not saddle broke. And God wants to break you to carry the saddle. And that was, I was about 20 years old when they prayed that, and that was true. I kind of submitted, but could God really use me if I hadn't meeked myself? If I hadn't been made gentle and low, humble and submitted? Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. This word, the earth, means the land. It can be used very generically. Uh, 
we don't want to get into end times theology with this conversation, but you know, we, we don't necessarily know how it all exactly plays out. But in all these things, there's an inheritance for us. We, we will be in the kingdom of heaven. We will be comforted. I forgot to talk about that when it came to mourning. Blessed are those who look and grieve over the condition of things because they will be comforted. There's a comforter. <laughs> what Jesus did on the cross for us and then giving us his spirit as a comforter. There should be a comfort for us because we know how the story ends. We know where this goes. And we should take comfort in that. But also that if we are meek, there's an inheritance for us. Gentle, humble. Jesus uses a, an analogy where they might use this word when he, when he talks in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart. Jesus was not, uh, he, he was he was so powerful and so gentle. He just, he, he, it's just a great example for us. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you need rest for your soul? Boy, I feel like a lot of people just need some uh, rest in their souls under the trials and the difficulty. And we're carrying a heavy yoke because we're charging and trying to plow and knock things over and make it right and fix it. Taking up stuff ourselves. Taking up the yoke on our own. Taking matters into our own hands. We're going to avenge. Absolutely contrary to what the scripture teaches us to do. God says, do not avenge. It's mine to avenge. I'm the one who takes these matters into my hands. I come to the rescue of the poor and the weak and the meek. That's who God is. And Jesus is challenging us to be these things in our character, not just on the surface, not just to look like these things. Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's so concerned with the heart. You know, he told the Pharisees that one time, don't just wash the outside of the cup. Wash the inside of the cup. You can't fake these things. You can't fake humbleness, not for very long. You can't fake meekness. You can't fake mourn. There are things that are within our nature and we need to invite God to work them out through us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. The Bible often uses these analogies of hungering and thirsting and, and just to just communicate the idea of desire and craving and to be nourished by these things. I think we have to, when, when we see this thing, hunger and thirst for righteousness, we also have to link it with things like meekness and lowliness and mourning, because when we, when we think hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness, we can then get on our self-righteous gear and go start beating people up with it. Got on my righteous crusade because it's righteous that I be this way. But what is righteousness in the Bible? 
Is that the righteousness we see demonstrated in Scripture? Righteousness is to be justified, to be in a right standing, a right position before God. You don't do that for yourself. You cannot justify yourself to God. He justified you by faith, through grace. Because you believe in his sacrifice, this justification comes. But yet, we always kind of want to take on this ultra-warrior spirit and self-righteous, we call it righteous anger, righteous indignation, but you aren't righteous, not in that way. He is. He is the one who brings about the righteousness. We want to hunger and thirst for it. Where do we find it? We find it in his scripture. We find it in his teaching. We find it in his grace and our faith in him. We want to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that comes from God, not a self-promoted righteousness. God isn't calling us to be self-empowered. He's calling us to hunger and thirst for a justification and a righteousness, a goodness, a right standing, a right attitude, a right direction from Him. His way. His way is not the world's way. It never has been. And it's not going to be. And it contradicts our human nature so much. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Such a dissatisfaction in the world. It's a broken world. And we look for satisfaction in all kinds of things, all kinds of worldly things. Visiting with a friend last week, young guy, single guy, uh, went through his early years making some good money and blew it all on trucks and stuff like that. And now he's in his 30s and he's like, just wears off. Drive around a new truck for two months, it wears off. It's not worth it to me anymore to do those kind of things. And we do that kind of stuff, don't we? Whatever I can do to satisfy myself, drugs, entertainment, gossip, whatever it is, I don't want to fill that gap in my life because I want to be satisfied. But there is nothing that satisfies like the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ by relating to him, praying to him, hearing from him, studying his word, learning what he said. There's a righteousness in there, and it satisfies our soul. The gap in humanity between man and God is filled by God. He made a way. And there's such a satisfaction in that. I think I'll continue with these other ones this week. We're going to take communion at this time. So if you've got the elements, you'll... It's got these funny little wafers in the top. They like dissolve instantly in your mouth. Actually, they're kind of like styrofoam, so be warned. But I don't really think it's about exactly what we use. I mean, you know, when Jesus, uh, on the night he was betrayed, he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and they used wine and they used bread. And so we use things symbolic of that today. It's such an important thing um, because it, it just gives us an opportunity to stop and remember. It's about remembering. It's about remembering what this is really all about, where this all really begins. And it, be, it, 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 it just, it's just healthy for us as a family of believers, a community of people to at the same time eat the bread and drink the cup, 
reminiscing about that night, that fateful night when, when Judas betrayed Jesus and they went out to the garden to pray and Judas brings in the, the group of guys to arrest Jesus and kisses him to signal who Jesus actually is in the group and Peter pulls out a sword and swings it at the head of the high priest's servant, chops off his ear. Jesus rebukes him for thinking that that was the way things were going to happen. He gets arrested and crucified, sheds his blood on the cross by the next day as the perfect lamb who gave up his blood that you could be righteous, not in a righteousness that you ever could earn, or that you could conjure up for yourself or stir up inside of you. It's a righteousness that he gave you as a gift and just asks you to believe, have faith in, put your faith in that sacrifice. Paul in 1 Corinthians was rebuking the Corinthians. He didn't like how they were doing communion and apparently they were you know, having a meal, some of them, and others weren't, the poor weren't necessarily able to engage. They were doing it at different times. And I think Paul kind of gets in there and rebukes them for kind of missing the point. And he begins in verse 23 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians when he gives instruction on remembering. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was establishing a new agreement between man and God, one that would be ratified by his sacrifice one that would pay the price for all sin, for all time, for everyone that submitted it to him. Such a burden he bore on that cross, carrying the weight of everything the world has ever done wrong. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's the phase we're in, the phase of proclaiming his death and waiting for his return. Let's pray. God, we are humble, humbled before you. Lord, we make ourselves low. We lower our haughtiness and our pride. We lower our spirits before you. You are the king. And when we didn't deserve it, you laid down your life that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. You did something for us we could never do on our own. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And so, Lord, today, as a small gathering of believers on the planet. We proclaim your death, a terrible and wonderful thing. God, we are so thankful that your body was broken and your blood was shed. And so we remember you today. We remember what this is all about by eating this bread and drinking this cup.
You may take the bread. And you may drink the cup. Indeed, there is no one like you. There's no one like you, Lord. We praise you today. We honor you as the king of all kings. God, and we look at these words that you taught us all those years ago, teaching us how to be in our inner selves, teaching us about what our character should be, what our attitude should be, what our responses should be. So, Father, we, we, we're thankful for your word that is timeless, as you said it would be. And in, in truth, it endures even to this day after thousands of years. So, Father, we honor you for that today. Grateful to be your children. Grateful to be rescued. God, I pray for each one here today. God, it has been very difficult for so many people in so many different ways. Our hearts are burdened with many different things. But God, I pray for my friends here today, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would comfort them, that you would strengthen them. God, I pray that you go into the deep places of their hearts, Lord, and, and wrap your arms of love around them and whisper your truths your truths, your character, your nature, your breath of life into each one of our souls. God, that we would go out into this world and we would represent you well to a dying world. God, that we would have compassion on the brokenness. God, that we would reach out hands of love and understanding like you did us. That we would follow in your example and we would follow in your footsteps in the way we live our lives, and the way we treat other people. I thank you for these powerful words you gave us. I bless your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.